The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Chris. I'm the youth pastor here. And um, actually, I have the privilege of... Um, be able to share from the Word of God for today and the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to be doing a three-part series that is called Joy in Christ. And I know that a couple of summers ago, actually right around this time, Pastor Peter actually preached a series um, on joy. And I think it's going to be a little bit of a different spin, but I did want to take a moment this morning to share with you all why, um, why this topic. Um, there's a couple of things that have just been running through my mind in the last several months. Um, one of them is Related to this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that he writes in Spiritual Depression, he says, The greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. Nothing is more important than that we should be delivered from a condition that gives, which gives other people looking at us the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid, and that the Christian is one who scorns delights and lives laborious days. Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give, give this appearance of unhappiness and lack of freedom and of absence of joy. There's no question at all but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. When we think about um, making purchases online and, and going to stores and, and testing things out and asking store associates about you know, whether they would recommend this product over another product, I think we've all gotten very used to this idea of having customer reviews to be able to depend on and has as a source of information for us to be able to figure out whether or not something is going to be worth the price that we need to pay for it. And for the last year or two, I think this one thought has just been in the back of my mind that Christians are constantly giving our own customer review of what it is like to have a life in Christ. When people know that you are a Christian, that you're a person of faith, that the way that we live, our attitudes, our, the words that we say, the things that we do, just give other people a view of what a life in Christ actually looks like. And if I'm really honest, I fear that just like Martin Lloyd Jones said in that quote, that we are becoming less and less of a positive um, motivator for the world that is watching us. That we complain often, that we um, grumble a lot, that we are dissatisfied with things often, that we don't seem to be able to even enjoy life as much as maybe people outside of the church do. Another motivation for this series has been uh, just reflecting on these two quick parables in in Matthew chapter 13. The parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of of great price says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding this one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and he bought it. So the reason why I wanted to preach this series on joy is not because I have found this safe answer, this fail-proof answer for how to live a life that is full of joy all the time, but because I want to experience that sort of a life. 
that when I read these parables and see Jesus teaching about what it is to discover the kingdom of God, that I want to know what it is like to discover it and then to say that I am so glad to have found this one great thing that I am glad to sell everything else that I have so that I may pursue that. I don't often find that there is this exceeding joy in my heart because of Christ. And there's so many things that steal away that joy or that distract me or things that I would prefer to have in the moment more than Christ. And I want and I need to discover how to recover that joy. So this whole series is a desperate cry from my heart to God to show me what that man was seeing when he saw that, that treasure in the field. To see what that pearl dealer, that merchant saw when he saw that pearl. And hopefully for me to be able to share a little bit of that truth that he's um, imparting to me. So this series, we're going to have three parts to it. Today, this, this, um, the sermon title is Pursuing Joy in Christ. And next week, we'll be talking about joy comes in the morning. And the following week, it'll be the joy of giving. Before we get started with our message for this morning, uh, would you guys bow your heads with me and pray uh, one more time? God, we do desperately ask for you to speak to us today. God, I pray that um, all the reasons why we may be joyless, all the things that um, cause us to stumble others even, um, because of our outlook on life and because of the way that we find that we're not quite as satisfied as we would have hoped or expected. Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us um, the way out, how to recover the joy of, of your salvation, how to recover this gladness of heart, the excitement over the work that you are doing in our lives and in this world. God, we pray that you would... Um, Convict us all over again today that you are asking us to actively, desperately pursue a joy in Christ, a joy that lasts, a joy that overflows to everyone around us. Would you be with us during this time? Open up your scripture to us. Help us to receive it with open hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point I want to make today is that everyone pursues joy. There's no exceptions to this. Blaise Pascal says it like this. He says, all men seek happiness, and this is without exception. Whatever different means that they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire and both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. All of us pursue joy, but the difference between each of us and our pursuit of joy is that we have a different view or a different idea of what it is that is actually going to bring us that happiness or the joy. And you guys will notice in the next couple of weeks that I'm not making a distinction between those ideas. So rejoicing, enjoying something, having joy, having happiness, that I think some people could make that distinction. But for me, if I'm really being honest with myself, that I've never really been convinced that there's something that is so profoundly different about them. And even the way that scripture speaks about these things, I think that there, are, there is a lot of overlap so that really what I'm talking about when I talk about joy is just this gladness of heart over something that is worth rejoicing in. 
I know that I'm doing exactly what you're not supposed to do when you give it the definition, right? I'm using the word joy several times in that, but really it's like there's something that you see that is so worth rejoicing in that it, it, it is the heart's natural response to that thing, okay? And sometimes it comes out as happiness. Sometimes it comes out in pleasure. Sometimes it comes out as something that, that is deeper, more profound, that maybe people would refer to more regularly as joy. But it's all getting kind of lumped in the same bucket for, for our purposes here. So when we talk about joy, and we're all after happiness, but every person's vision of the good life is different. And Blaise Pascal's quote, I think it's shocking that we could say that even people, he says, even people that hang themselves are pursuing a joy of some sort, that they have convinced themselves that there is something better there than here, and therefore I'm going to take on this terrible act. So all of us pursue joy. We can't get away from it. And I think the second thing that we want to talk about is the fact that it's God's design for us to pursue our greatest joy. Okay, we all pursue joy, and not just that that is a fact of life, but secondly, that that is actually God's design for us, is to, for us to pursue our greatest joy. It's right for us to pursue joy. It's not sinful for us to want to be happy and to go after that happiness. This pursuit of joy is actually one of the mechanisms that God uses to drive us to himself. And we know that this is true in Scripture because in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If God didn't will this for us, he wouldn't have commanded us to do it, right? We want to seek joy. Also, our worship requires us to rejoice. Like I was saying at the beginning, think about what it would look like if we were to come and we were to comprehend all this truth about God from Scripture— and that we know who God is, we experience God, but we have no joy. What would that mean about our worship? What would that mean about the worthiness of God? To me, I think if we were stripped of that joy, if we were not supposed to find joy in God, that our worship would be always half-hearted, always just leaning on duty and obligation. And that doesn't mean that we cannot worship through lament or even in expressing our anger before God. We certainly can and we should. We've talked about that um, in the past year and a half or so. But it seems obvious to me that it would not be honoring to God if in our worship we didn't experience real delight in him and in his creation, in his gifts. If every one of us is always pursuing, pursuing joy, then in order for our hearts to be given to God, then we have to find that God is the end of that pursuit in some way, right? We're constantly in our lives going after this happiness, this joy. And so we need to know that in order for us to be able to worship God rightly, that part of that means enjoying him. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, he writes, These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are from, far from me. God desires our hearts, not just our outward acts of obedience and duty. John 4, 23, Jesus is talking to the, to the Samaritan woman. As well. He says the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It's not just about knowing what is right and doing what is right, but in having your spirit be a part of that, right? Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It's not just about doing justice, not just doing kindness that is enough, but you need to learn to love that kindness and to love being just. 
And if we really think about this, I think it becomes obvious to us that the person who does good with no desire to be good is probably not really a good person yet, right? That their heart still needs to be formed to desire the good. And so if you found somebody who is doing good and they love doing good, then we would say, man, that person is really probably farther along in becoming the kind of person that God wants us to be than the former. But strangely enough, we've been deluded by this sense and this idea that any good action has to be free of any selfish gain, right? That if I enjoy this, that it's not really selfless. It's not really serving other people. I'm just doing it for myself. It's so selfish. It's so wrought with sin that it has to be wrong. But it's just not true. When we delight in doing the good that God calls us to do, that is what pleases God's heart more, right? He wants us to be the kind of people that would delight in those things that he delights in. And so we pursue this joy in God, and we do it rightly, without sin. The third way that we know that Scripture tells us that God's design is for us to pursue this greatest joy is that Scripture is filled with promises of rewards. He tells us over and over and over again that, man, this is what's going to happen when you live the way that I'm calling you to live. And look at what is waiting for you at the end of this. And he's not just saying it like, okay, it's a byproduct. Like, you don't, you shouldn't actually want that gift. You shouldn't want the prize at the end. But it'll come to you. Just trust me. But really just think about, like, how much you, like, are willing to go through the, 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 the nitty-gritty and, and go through the hard times for my sake, and then somehow there will be this reward at the end. But don't think about that because that will taint it with sin, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, this is the prize that I'm holding out to you. Pursue it. Go after it with all of your heart. That's why you should be driven. That's what is going to keep you going in the times when it's hard to keep going. He commends joy and reward as a motivation for turning to Christ, for giving our lives to him. It's not just an incidental um, reward at the end. In Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, sell all your possessions and give to the need to provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. He could have just said, sell everything that you have, give to the needy, and that makes me happy, so just do it. But he doesn't. He says, sell all of this because there's something even better. I'm asking you to give up this so that you can have this awesome and greater thing. So look at that and pursue it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, I think is maybe the clearest picture where the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus himself, when he was being crucified, was willing to endure the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Jesus himself was looking at the joy that was waiting for him and saying, that is why I'm here. That is what is keeping me going here, is that there is a joy that is going to be purchased at this cross. So up until now, we've been talking about, we, need, we all pursue joy, whether we like it or not, in one way or another. And God's design for us is to desire... And his desire for us is for us to pursue our greatest joy. And now it would be great news if I could just tell you guys that, okay, you guys all pursue joy naturally. And God wants us to pursue joy, so go in peace and enjoy everything that you want, right? And I wish we could say that. It would take zero effort and zero grace, and we just go after everything that we want all the time. And God would be happy about it. But the fact of the matter is that sin is real, and our pursuit of joy is 
tainted. We do all pursue joy, but sometimes we pursue it in bad things. That's one of the ways that it's tainted, right? We pursue joy in bad things, in wrong things, in sinful things. But a second way that we pursue our, our pursuit of joy is tainted is that sometimes we pursue joy in good things, but in bad ways. We can turn good things into ultimate things. We can make the gifts better, more valuable to our hearts than the giver. And when we pursue joy in bad things, we are always disappointed. We find that those things don't actually satisfy. We can often get to a point where we don't even want that thing anymore because we know that it's empty, but we've just become addicted to it. We just want that next hit so much. And it doesn't have to be just drugs, but even like video games or watching TV or or even sports sometimes. We love look forward to the next golf outing so that we can just get a little bit of that high that we experienced the last time of just being able to hit that perfect shot, right? So when we pursue these things, we know that in the end, it's not going to fix all of our problems. It's not going to give us a lasting joy, but we still keep going after them. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, God um, is talking to his people. He says, has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We go after these empty vessels and look for water there where there is no water. And when we pursue joy in good things, but in bad ways, we make idols of these things, and we expect them to fulfill us in ways that they cannot. So just like those bad things don't satisfy us, we find that they're empty. Even good things that are meant to give us some degree of joy, we can twist them so that they fail us. This is especially true of our relationships with other people. When we put all of our hopes and our dreams in our children and expect them to make us ultimately happy and, and never fail us, we know that that's not going to go well. We do that to our spouses, to our best friends, to our bosses, to our mentors. Even our good relationships in life will go bad when we expect these people to fulfill us in ways that they are not meant to. We become clingy and needy, and we start to believe that they are unloving and indifferent. I want to share this quick video with you guys of um, my kids, partly just so I can brag about No, I'm just kidding. Um, a quick video of our, of our kids. And uh, can we just play it? It's like 30 seconds long. Okay, that's the end, but that's okay. So here's what was going on. His sister is sitting in that car seat that he's looking over at the whole time. And um, he's making her laugh, right? So he, like, said some gibberish, and she, like, laughed at him, like, ah! And they did it again, and she's laughing. Did it again, and she's laughing. But I think you guys can even see, even without hearing it, that eventually, towards the end of the video, it's like he's doing the same thing. He's like trying harder and harder and harder. But he's like, like looking over at her constantly like, are you going to laugh? Are you going to laugh? Right? Because she wasn't giving like no reaction. She's like, ah, blah, blah, and she's like, nothing. Right? And he keeps on trying to get her to laugh again, and it's just not working. And at the beginning of this video, it's like so fun for me to watch Grayson making his sister laugh, right? It brings so much delight to me, to Connie, to Grayson. He loves making his sister laugh. And Avery, of course, is, is laughing hysterically. And, 
But I think all of us kind of sense at the end of the video, like, there's something kind of uncomfortable about this once she's, like, not laughing anymore, right? Like, and we were all, like, secretly glad that Connie stopped recording when she did because it would have just kept on going on. He's like, laugh for me, right? And she's like, no, it's not funny anymore. You already did it, like, 15 times. But this is basically what happens to us in all the things that we chase after for our joy. That they give us these little hits of this happiness, and we laugh, and we laugh, and we're like, oh, that's awesome, it's funny, it's good. And then we do it again, and then it's like, oh, it's good again. Then we do it again, and it's good, and then the fourth time, it's like a little bit less, and the fifth time, a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less, and then finally we're like, ah, just, why am I still in the car with you, you know? But we keep on going after those things still. We pursue our joy, but we do it in the wrong things. Or we pursue joy in good things in wrong ways. And so in response to this, these twisted pursuits of these uh, broken pursuits of joy, sometimes we try to correct our course by stopping our pursuit of joy. These Infinity commercials use this um, slogan. They say the rules of luxury, right, are look but don't touch, touch but don't use, use but don't enjoy, and then enjoy but don't show it. And as Christians, I think a lot of times we've come to believe that this is what's supposed to happen in the Christian life. That if we start to enjoy things a little bit too much, that God is going to say, like, nope, that's your sin. That's just your sin feeding, like, feeding its own, like, sinful heart. You need to stop that. This is so wrong. We think that the pursuit of joy itself is wrong and selfish. We become these ascetics, so we, we fall into the Buddhist mentality of, of saying that every desire that we want, we need to kill it, squash it. We stop enjoying even the good gifts of God. We say, like, okay, I know that this is good, but it's bringing me too much happiness. I'm not going to keep on going after that because I really just want God. I don't want any of the other stuff. And so we become mediocre worshipers because we don't actually enjoy the things that God intends for us to enjoy. And eventually we even get to the point where we stop believing that there's anything that will finally satisfy us. And so we settle for these smaller temporary satisfactions. We become ripe for being led astray by any and every advertising ploy and the promise of safety and satisfaction. Because we don't even expect anything great anymore. We just want something that is going to give me that next hit of a little bit of happiness. Something that I can access now. We don't care to invest in a career. Just any well-paying job will do. We don't care to find a good church community. We just will settle for an online sermon that, that gets us through the week. We don't care for a marriage. We'll just settle for a hookup. We don't care for deep friendships. We just will settle for lots of social media followers. I'm sure that most, if not all of us, have heard this quote from C.S. Lewis before, and it comes from a sermon series that he preached titled The Weight of Glory, But he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition and when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So there's the problem. We all pursue joy. It's inevitable. It's God's design and his desire for us to pursue our greatest joy. But when we pursue joy, we often seek to enjoy the wrong things or we enjoy the wrong, right things wrongly. 
And because of the way that sin has wrecked our joy, we usually respond by trying not to pursue joy anymore and just by being satisfied with with smaller things. So what do we do? I think every one of you guys could have come to this conclusion on your own. We're all sitting in a church today. But the right way to correct this ship is that we all need to pursue joy in Christ. The right pursuit of joy is the pursuit of joy in Christ. Not because we're commanded to do so, but because he is the ultimate source of satisfaction. John Calvin wrote, If God contains the fullness of all good things in himself like an inexhaustible fountain, nothing beyond him is to be sought by those who strike after the highest good and all the elements of happiness. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper writes that the key to conversion is not just that we believe certain things or we're convinced of certain things in our minds, but do we treasure him more than everything? We need to make our joy found in Christ, make sure that we are pursuing it in Christ, treasure him. And then going back to the parable of the treasures in the fe- treasure in the field and the pearl of great price, when we see that treasure, that pearl, what is needed is a delight in that kingdom that makes all the rest of the stuff pale in comparison to it. And that's why that man, in his joy, sells everything that he has and goes and buys that field. That's why that expert pearl dealer who knows exactly what he's looking at, he's not being fooled by this pearl, but he says, this is better than anything else that I've ever seen. I'm, I have to have it. I will sell everything else so that I can have this one. Now, the problem here, again, is that we all know that we should be pursuing joy in Christ. Like I said, you guys could have told me that when I walked in the door today. But what happens when we just don't? What do I do when I know that I'm pursuing joy, that I know that God wants me to be fulfilled, that I know that I need to be pursuing this in Christ, that I do turn after these other things? What do I do then? We don't see him as supremely valuable. We aren't willing to sell everything that we have so we can have him. We lack this joy in Christ because we do not treasure him as we ought to. And sometimes we just don't know how to get to the point where we do treasure him the way that we ought to. And we start to think to ourselves, what is it that I'm missing? Why do I not see what these other people have? This was a common experience that my wife and I, Connie, had talked about from our youth group days. When you go to a retreat, with the rest of your youth group, and there's, we, we used to have a really big youth group. It was like 200 of us. So we'd go on these retreats, and everybody on that last night of the retreat is singing and praising their hearts out, and they're crying, bawling their, their eyes out, and, and, and praying. And nobody seems to have any trouble praying and, and praising God so much that night. But several of us at those retreats were always sitting there thinking, like, what's wrong with me then? How come I'm not feeling what they're feeling? Why do I not have this ecstasy? Why do I not have this, this, um, this sorrow over my guilt and my sin the way that they do? What are they seeing here that I don't see? What did the Apostle Paul see that allowed him to say that everything that he had counts as a loss compared to knowing Christ? What do I not see that Peter and Andrew and James and John saw that they, made them, so that they were willing to leave their, their boats and their nets and just leave and, and follow Jesus immediately? This is meant to be kind of humorous. I hope nobody's offended by this, but <laughs> um, I'm not a huge fan of modern art, okay? Um, not because I think it's terrible, but because I think, in my mind, in some ways, it's a little bit ridiculous, okay? Can we slip to the next slide? So there's this 
this painting, this is not wrong. That right side of the screen is a painting, okay? It is the color red, and the title of it is Blood Red Mirror. And this painting sold for $1.1 million. There's another painting called Green and White that sold for $1.6 million. I'm going to ask you guys to think in your mind. Let's flip to the next one. How much do you think this painting was worth? This is called Untitled, 1961. Sold for $28 million. The next one, also titled Untitled, but 1970, sold for $69.6 million. And I think my son Grace, who's three, could have made it. The next one, Blue Fool, very creative. $5 million. Riot, $29.9 million. One Mint, it's a painting that has a strip that is not painted in the middle called One Mint Six. There are six of these. And this is $43.8 million. Orange, red, yellow. Again, very creative name. $86.9 million. Anna's Light. It's big. $105.7 million. Next one, Untitled. Again, this was actually made by my wife on her iPhone in about three minutes. But it looks very similar to the other ones. And if you're willing to pay millions of dollars for it, please come and contact me afterwards. And I don't mean to bash on anybody who, who loves modern art. And I, honestly, if I had one of these hanging in my, in my living room, I'm sure that I would enjoy it immensely. Okay? But the problem that I have with this is that I'm looking at these paintings and saying, there must be something that I'm missing here because I would never pay more than like maybe $100 for a really big painting like that to put in my living room. And I think that's how a lot of us feel sometimes when we're looking at Scripture, when we're listening to the Word of God preached every Sunday when we're here at church. And we say, okay, I know that you believe that Jesus is worth giving all this stuff for. I know that you think that this life is the only life that is worth living. But for some reason right now, I'm really not feeling it. I don't understand. I don't feel that joy. So what do I do? John Piper wrote a book um, called Desiring God that probably most of you know. But he wrote another book called When I Don't Desire God that I found incredibly helpful in making sense of kind of this journey of, of what happens when I know those truths, but I don't actually feel what I'm supposed to feel there. When I look at what I see of God and I don't delight in it the way that I should. When we lack joy, the solution is not to just muster up more joy as if we could ever do that. We cannot trick or manufacture these emotions, the response of the heart. Like I said, joy is this natural response to the heart that beholds something that is thoroughly enjoyable, that is worth rejoicing in. So I cannot just decide, all right, I'm going to say that that's worth rejoicing in. It just doesn't happen that way. But when we see Christ for who he really is, the Bible tells us over and over and over again that we will come to treasure him. But there's a problem here, again, Treasuring Christ is something that is only made possible by the grace of God. 
our hearts in our twistedness, in the sinfulness, in all the ways that we pursue all these other joys, that we cannot do that on our own just to decide on our, by ourselves that I'm going to suddenly treasure Christ. He's going to be the pearl of great price in my mind. That I'm going to forsake everything else and be glad about it. I can't just decide that on my own. It is a work of God in our hearts. Jonathan Edwards says, Man's proper happiness consists in the enjoyment of God, but it is not possible that man should enjoy God with only those things in him which he receives by the first birth, so that there is this necessity of man's being born again. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your souls, that you may live. God is going to be the one to circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord. Jeremiah 24, verse 7 says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. He's going to draw our hearts to him by giving us the heart that we need to desire him, to find our pleasure and our joy in him. So this could mean that all of us are saying, okay, well, then that's not up to me. It's up to God. He has to do the work. I just wait here until he snaps his fingers and makes me enjoy him. Cause me to delight in him. But as with most things in the Christian life, we're not asked to just stand idly by and wait for some miracle to happen. But we are called to an active pursuit of this joy and this delight in God. Scripture also commands us to seek him with all of your heart. Desire to see him in his glory. Moses, when he was um, talking to God, says to God, God, the one thing that I want you to do for me is to show me your glory. Show me your glory. So we want to echo that desire of Moses' heart and say, God, I don't see your glory right now. I don't enjoy you the way that I should, but I want you to show me that glory. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, Paul prays for the church of Ephesus, and he says that he wants for them to be able to see the truth of who Christ is. He wants them to see him rightly. Jesus also prayed for the disciples in the same way. In John chapter 17, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. We need to actively desire to see the glory and the goodness of God. I'm encouraged by the story of a man named John Bunyan. You all probably know him as the author of Pilgrim's Progress. But there was a time when John also didn't desire God that way. He writes, A whole flood of blasphemies, both against God, Christ, and the Scriptures, were poured upon my spirit. To my great confusion and astonishment, my heart was at times exceeding hard. If I, confu if, if I would have given a thousand pounds for a tear, I could not shed one. Oh, the desperateness of man's heart. I feared that this wicked sin of mine might be that sin unpardonable. Oh, no one knows the terrors of those days but myself. But then one day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. 
so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God about the unforgivable sin left off to trouble me. Now went I also home, rejoicing for the grace and love of God. John Bunyan eagerly desired to see the glory and the goodness of God, and he was desperate for it. He says that nobody knows the terrors of those days when he didn't see the glory of God except for himself. And then one day, by the grace of God, he showed up, and all of a sudden, all these things that he had known in his head for years suddenly made sense. His eyes were opened, and he saw, oh my gosh, my goodness, my righteousness is in heaven. Jesus Christ, who is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, is my righteousness. I stand right before God because Jesus is my righteousness. And he says, as soon as that conviction hit his heart, then he was also able, like all the, all the others, to go home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. Now, I don't pretend to be able to stand here before you guys and convince everybody in this room that this is true or pretend that all of a sudden, all of us are going to go home and our lives are going to be perfect. We're all going to have this thorough joy in God. That's why I have two more weeks, right? (laughs) I'm just kidding. But one little bit that really encourages me, that makes me so glad to have a God like ours, is that the God of this universe is utterly committed to my joy. Not only my joy, but he's utterly committed to my joy because he has tied together the fabric of my joy and of his glory so closely. And I know how jealous he is for his glory. That's the whole crux of everything that John Piper has based his entire ministry on, right? That he is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And so when God has, has weaved together those two pursuits and saying that our pursuit of our joy has the same end as his pursuit of his glory, I am thoroughly convinced that, man, our God is a genius, right? And I'm so glad that he worked it out that way because I don't have to choose anymore to glorify him or to enjoy this life, but I can do both. I have to do both. That's what I was created for. It's like his glory is this raging river. And eventually all the glory and honor and praise will be his. And our joy is like this little stream weaving in and out of that river where his glory as it's shown and revealed to us that we find more joy and satisfaction in him. And as we enjoy and are satisfied in him, that we continue to contribute more to that glory, not by making him more glorious, but by showing how glorious he is to the rest of this world. And so I hope that in 20 years' time that we will not have any more preachers that are saying to the church that we as Christians are not showing enough joy or happiness in our lives. That the church would be a resounding five-star like, like review of who God is and the life that he offers to us. 
We grow in our delight in him because of his glorious goodness. How marvelous and how wonderful, how glorious is our God who designed the universe this way. I hope and pray that each of us will see him more and more clearly and that our delight will grow in him more and more every day. Let's pray. God, this is a real struggle of ours. One, to be able to overcome this false notion that we should um, live this life with, without joy and that there is only joy in, in life to come and that this life is going to be hard and miserable at every turn, and that we can honor you with a joyless heart. God, would you convict us and show us that yes, there will be struggles that come. Yes, we can face those things with a hope for the future, but that now your promises are not only for the future, but for now that you want us to find our greatest delight in you today. God, would you correct us in all the ways that we pursue joy in the wrong things or in the right things in wrong ways? God, would you, for all of us who are sitting here who have heard this message so many times and who are thoroughly convinced in our minds that we should be pursuing our joy in Christ, but just still find it hard to delight in you. That we don't find that our hearts well up with joy and delight when we see you. Lord, we pray for your grace. We pray for you to act, to move. God, would you do what only you can do? Help us, Lord. We come to you with desperation. We want to see your glory. Father God, we pray that our hearts would be filled with this sort of a joy, that you'd help us each and every day to pursue it with every fiber of our being for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name.